Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Melissa Lima, your North Coast and Organic Field Services representative, bringing you this week's episode of Seen and Heard, which is actually last week's episode of The Dairy Download, a podcast produced by our partners at IDFA and Bloomling & Associates. Western United Dairy's CEO Anya Radabaugh appeared on last week's episode of The Dairy Download titled Let's Talk Dairy Associations, along with the Executive Director of Wisconsin Dairy Products Association, Brad Lagrid. We hope you enjoy this episode. We would encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to the Dairy Download on your favorite listening platform. And we will jump right in with the Dairy Download. This is the Dairy Download brought to you by Blumling & Associates and the International Dairy Foods Association, where we offer extra sharp market and policy insights on dairy. I'm your host, Phil Plord. And I'm your co-host, Kathleen Wolfley. Today's episode is about advocacy at the state level. We'll chat with leaders of industry associations in two of America's leading dairy states. We'll get to that in a bit. As always, thanks to our listeners. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe through your favorite platform. And why not tell a friend? We continue to get positive feedback, which is great. Share your thoughts with us at dairydownload at idfa.org. All right, Kathleen, where are we now? Well, Phil, prices as of Thursday, March 31st, block cheese landed at $2.25, up a penny on the week. CME spot barrels closed at $2.20, down a penny. Butter finished at $2.70, down a dime on the week. And the non-fat dry milk market closed at $1.84, four cents lower. Phil, what do you think is the most important thing right now? I remain fixated on Europe. Um, European milk production has been thematic. We've talked about it over and over again uh, over the past several months. We have the Ukraine-Russia situation, which is still front and center for many reasons, not least grain markets. And um, you know we have 750 corn still, and that's a, that certainly has ripple effects into our space in the United States for uh, from a cost of production standpoint. And then you just look at things like the price of butter in Europe. You know, the Dutch quotation this week was at 350 per pound. I've seen uh, indications of trading as high as 375 a pound on European butter. So those markets are still pretty hot. And it's hard for me to imagine that things cool off much in the US so long as we're seeing European butter, powder, and cheese prices go up week after week after week. What about you? So what you're saying is that if you're a real big lover of imported Irish butter, you're probably going to be paying a lot more in the next couple months, huh? Probably not going to get cheaper. <laughs> so I, to me, I'm going to piggyback on something you said. I think outside markets are one of the most important things right now. So over the course of the, the last couple of weeks, our markets have been really volatile and we've seen a lot of spillover strength or weakness come out of the grain complex and the geopolitical situation at large. So days when the grain markets make big moves lower, it seems like we are watching the, the class three and class four markets melt down as well. And the other way around is too. I think that generally dairy fundamentals remain supportive, but these fluctuations in the grain markets, which as you noted, have a direct impact on dairy profitability, seem to be taking the wheel today. What is your stat of the week, Phil? You know, we're going to go with something hyper-local and personal this time around, Kathleen. The number is $67. 
that's what it took to put 12 gallons of gasoline in my trusty minivan in Cape Verde, Arizona, just a little bit south of Sedona. Um, it was kind of a literal highway robbery situation uh, at 550 something per gallon. Uh, the prices in Phoenix were only 450 something per gallon. But it was, a, it was certainly a, the most money I ever put into gasoline into my van ever. And it was certainly a reminder that uh, people are putting a lot of money in the gas tank. And for many, it leaves less money for other things. And so uh, the, the, the gasoline situation, very real and became quite visceral for myself in lovely Cape Verde, Arizona earlier this week. What about you? You know, Phil, I, I just have to wonder at what point does the consumer change whether or not they're going to go out to dinner or how many bricks of cheese they toss into the, the cart based on paying that much more in fuel each week. My stat of the week is 431,000. That's how many jobs employers added in the month of March. That took the unemployment rate to 3.6%. So we're almost back to pre-pandemic levels. The uptick in jobs was primarily driven by the leisure and hospitality sector, while we're seeing only slight increases in the number of jobs that manufacturers have added. What is your fearless prediction, Phil? Well, this week, USDA published its prospective plantings report, and USDA said that farmers will plant 89.5 million acres of corn this year. That would be 2.7% less than a year ago and would be the lowest since 2018. And I'm going to take the over on 89.5 million acres because I don't know. I mean, I know that our colleagues at Everag, you know, doing meetings with, with grain farmers and other farmers for the past few months, you know, no one says they're planting more soybeans. Everybody says they're planting just as much corn. Uh, and again, highly anecdotal and who knows, but um, I, it just seems like, you know, corn often wins. And I'm going to say corn will win again and we'll take the over on 89.5 million acres. What about you? I'm going to go with a block cheese fearless prediction. I think block cheese will stay range bound between 205 and 230 during the month of April. All right, Phil, let's get to our first guest. We are excited to have Brad Legrid with us today. Brad is executive director at the Wisconsin Dairy Products Association, a role he's held since 1990. WDPA provides educational resources and legislative representation for the Wisconsin dairy industry. Brad, welcome to the Dairy Download. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. So can you tell us a little bit about WDPA's work? How does the association promote Wisconsin's dairy industry? How does it help its members? Well, first of all, the Wisconsin Dairy Product Association is a rather unique state regional association in the fact that we represent the entire spectrum of dairy products. Our members are both proprietary and cooperative, which manufacture all dairy products. So we're, we're rather unique in that respect. We're also very proud of the fact that we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. So we're putting a lot of effort into that to thank our members for their, their past and future loyalty. Now, as far as our work through the association, our primary focus would be in the legislative and regulatory arenas. We work very hard to make sure that the legislature or the Department of Ag do not promulgate rules or regulations that might hinder our members' abilities to compete fairly and equitably on the uh, national marketplace. In addition to that, we have a few special events that we hold every year, our Dairy Symposium our World Dairy Expo contest, and our golf outing. And those are held simply because we want to afford our members the, the ability to network, business networking, 
and also just to mingle with their dairy friends. I mean, as you know, our industry is very person-centric and they like to see each other. So we provide that opportunity for them. Yeah, Brad, you know, tell me about that contest for a second. I know there's the World Cheese Championships and there's other stuff that goes on, but 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 what is the WDPA contest is really unique because I've I've been in the room and helped with the judging. I mean, we, we you judge yogurt and dips and it's across the spectrum. That that is unique too, isn't it? Phil, if you have three hours or so, I'll, I'll tell you all about the contest. I get very excited about it. It's it's completely unique. There's nothing like it in the world. We're the only all-dairy product contest out there. And that means we, we judge grade A, we judge ice cream, we judge cheese, everything under the spectrum. We began the contest in 2003 because, as I said previously, we our association represents all dairy segments. And we talked about the board level and we said, you know what? There's no real all-encompassing contest for grade A and ice cream, so let's maybe do something like that for on a uh, like a national basis. So we began it in 2003 with only 100 entries, and this past year we had over 1,500 entries, and we had over I think it was 85 different classes. So Brad, you have been with WDPA since 1990. How over that? course of time, have you seen the state's dairy industry evolve? And today, where are you seeing it grow? What are the what are some of the areas where you think it could use a little bit of work? You know, what's very interesting about that, Kathleen, is back in the 90s, things were rather dire in our state's dairy economy. It, it was all a lot of gloom and doom. And California was the new golden child. Everybody was thinking, let's move out to California, whether you were a farmer or whether you were a processor. California was the place to go. And the old adage was, well, whoever's the last one in the state, turn off the lights because there's really no real hope for this, this industry. Uh, you know, California had surpassed us in milk production. All these other things were going on. And it was just very, very depressing. Let's put it like that. We were very proud of the fact that in the late 90s, Wisconsin Dairy Product Association, we knew there were some very progressive and forward-thinking farmers out there. They, they really wanted to do something special for the state and turn around this cycle that was going downhill right now. And we thought, you know, let's bring them to our dairy symposium. Let's have them on a panel. We know that the media is covering the symposium. And instead of always seeing these gloom and doom stories in the media about the Wisconsin dairy industry, let's bring on some positive-thinking people and get the word out there that there are producers out there who really want to make a go of this in this state. So we started doing this in the late 90s. I'm, I'm very happy to see that a lot of other organizations now have followed that suit, and it does give a forum to the producers and letting them know what their side of the story is. And I think that's real important for processors to hear that. But it was not just our association. Our legislature also started in, in, enacting some bills, uh, some tax credit bills and some dairy investment bills and credits that really helped our members modernize, expand, all kinds of things just to help us keep moving forward. I think Wisconsin is growing, it's gonna to continue to grow. We have a very rosy outlook. And unfortunately, I think California is hitting some little hurdles here and there now. So it's been almost a, a flip-flop from back 30 some years ago. What legislative policies and priorities is WDPA currently focused on? What, what's been happening lately in Madison? In Madison, it's called political gridlock. You have a Democratic governor and a Republican legislature, and both sides hate each other passionately. 
So about the only things that really were pertinent to the dairy industry this year, we had a couple of dairy export bills that were passed, which we're very grateful. Again, this is a continuing support from our legislature. We received about $2.5 million for this effort to try to get plants and processors to do more dairy exports. Some little things like that. But other than that, most of the bills just died in session because they could not be agreed upon. From your opinion, what are members most worried about these days? I mean, it's really since COVID started, it's been one headache after another. I think everyone is very aware of the problems that dairy processors had to deal with during those two years of COVID. I I mean, the biggest fear that anyone had was that there was going to be an outbreak at the plant and they would not have enough people work in the plant. And as we all know, cows don't turn off their udders. The milk keeps coming in no matter what, and you have to be able to process that milk. So I think these plants, they did Herculean type efforts through the past two years to get through this crisis. And I think what exacerbated all of this is that there is a labor shortage. I'll tell you, Kathleen, I hear from my members all the time how they just need more people. It's such a shortage, but it's not just our industry. It's, it's, we read about it all the time. It's all industries. Everyone's scrambling to get good employees. And then once you get them, how do you retain them? And I think with processing plants, if they're by a city or maybe a larger town, they have maybe a up on somebody else. If, if they are in a more of a rural, isolated area, they're running into all kinds of problems trying to staff their, their plant. So I think what I hear from my members is that we need more employees. And I think they wish that the government would get some type of practical, workable immigration policy passed because members are need, you know, you need some of the, the people from other countries, both at the farm level and the plant level. But I mean, that's for Washington, D.C. to get going on. Are you also hearing much about inflation these days? I mean, certainly that's, you know, a long, I mean, there's certainly inflation in wages, which is part of the labor dynamic. But, but what about inflation elsewhere? Is that something you're hearing about from members too? Inflation, I, I mean, they're always dealing with not only like we said with employment, but with all kinds of issues. Inflation, uh, energy shortages, fuel charges now. I, I mean, it started back with COVID where we were ha- hearing because of trade agreements, agreements we're going to be having all kinds of problems and that that was starting the whole inflationary spiral. Then we heard about the supply chain issues and all of the cargo ships backed up and in, in out there on the West Coast. And now, I mean, now we're hearing about it's with Russia and Ukraine. I know that there, there are issues all along for every industry. My concern is, and I've heard other people mention this too, I think some of these inflationary increases are legitimate. I think sometimes some groups, some entities might be jumping on the bandwagon, just trying to raise their prices because this is a good time to raise it because everyone else is raising it. But as far as inflationary, how to settle that and correct it, man, even the Federal Reserve doesn't know how to do it. And I know they're meeting today. They're trying to come up with some new policies. They're, they're tiptoeing through this minefield, trying to know what to do. But if they don't even know how to do it, I, it's really tough to know how we can handle on the, the dairy level. But I know that our members will persevere. They'll handle it like they did everything else through COVID and all before that. They're, they're, they're fighters and they, they will take care of it. What makes you most optimistic about the Wisconsin dairy industry? I'll tell you, Kathleen, this, this industry is second to none. I mean, I've seen a lot of industries over my lifetime and the, the cohesiveness of this industry. I think, I think maybe that's what the foundational 
bases of this industry. People are friends. They're honest. They do a lot of deal making just with a handshake and a smile. I, I've been so amazed when I've witnessed these kind of interactions over all these years. That's what creates a good, solid industry when you have that cohesiveness and you trust each other. And so that that's the foundation. We also have the reputation and we have the infrastructure and we have the ability to make top shelf dairy products. I mean, we're America's dairy land. I, that's a moniker we're very proud of. I always tell the legislature when I'm down for hearings that I say the dairy industry is the engine that pulls the entire economic train in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, it's, it's that important. And I know that our members are hardworking. They've had a lot of hurdles, like I said recently, but they will keep going forward. They're expanding, they're modernizing, they're, they're improving their, their flavor profiles of their products. They're innovating with new packaging. They're really, really going full speed ahead. And I just see the next 10, 20, 30 years in such a positive vein. Brad, what do you like most about your job? I mean, you have, you know, you get to interact with people, you get to interact with the legislature. You, I mean, what's the, what do you, what still gets you going about uh, showing up at WDPA offices every day after all these many years? Just waiting to get an interview time with Phil Ploward. You're, well, maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe you've reached the pinnacle. I mean, when you get to the mountaintop and you go to the main guru, there's nothing. It's, I think what I've enjoyed the most is the, the, the people that are members of our association. We, we have, I, I, I know that it sounds cliche-ish, but we have the best individuals in the world that work here. They're, they're very, very professional, but they're also sincere, down to earth, and they enjoy just having a smile and a good laugh. I mean, they're just the epitome of people that you would like to work with. And I think one thing that has always blown me away when it comes, just for instance, with our board of directors, we have 20 or so companies all representing very large companies, very diverse selection of product lines. When they come into that boardroom, they check their personal baggage at the front door there. And they come in and they make decisions based on what's good, not for their company, but for the dairy industry in entirety. It, that has never failed once. I've never seen anyone with a personal agenda. And that amazes me to no end that they are that professional, that they're working for everybody and not just themselves. Now, here comes the hardest question of the interview. What is your favorite Wisconsin dairy product? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me what, what my Zodiac sign was. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> Not to worry. No, no, no. <laughs> Just dairy products, unless you have a dairy product that's also a Zodiac sign. Okay. This is, I mean, okay. I think it would be very hard for me to come up with just one product. And that, that sounds schmaltzy, but I truly enjoy and love all dairy products. When I was growing up as a boy, I consumed... I don't know, volumes of fluid milk. I ate tons of ice cream. I ate all the grade A products. The only thing I did not eat was cheese. And that was because my grandmother, bless her soul, for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, you name it, when she set the table, she had the oldest, most dried out, crusty cheese that should have been thrown decades ago. She put that on the table, and that was my exposure to cheese. And I kind of swore off cheese in my teenage years because it was just – grody. I mean, it was just terrible. When I took this job in 90 and I started enjoying some of the cheeses that are out there. Yeah. Now I'm a cheese aficionado, but I love all dairy products. It's not just because we represent them all. I love them all. If I had, if you were going to pin me down to just one, it would have to be milkshakes because then you can combine both my fluid milk love and my ice cream love. I would have to agree with you. A milkshake does really hit the spot. 
Oh my! I mean, it, it's the best in the world. But I mean, you, you can't go wrong with anything. I, that's that's why it's easy to work and promote an industry when you believe in it yourself, and that it's so easy to believe in something when it's so good. Well, Brad, we really, really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for joining us on the Dairy Download. Thank you very much for having me. Now let's get a view from the West Coast. It's a pleasure to have Anya Radabaugh with us today. Anya is CEO of Western United Dairies, a role she's held since 2015. She's also served in leadership roles with the Madera County Farm Bureau and Fortune 500 company PBS&J, as well as in the offices of Congressman Doug Osei and California State Senator Dick Monteith. Anya, welcome to the Dairy Download. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So what are your job duties as the CEO of Western United Dairies and, and what's your work like with California dairy producers? I have, I think, the best job in the world. I get to work in both the public and private sectors. I work with all types of farmers and producers to try to improve their quality of life and their quality of living as a business in California, which is a challenge to do. I'm sure we'll talk about that. So what issues are top of mind for a California dairy farm today? Today, it would be water, water, water everywhere and lack thereof. Every geographic region in the state of California is suffering under what's designated an intense and severe drought designation. In prior droughts and drought cycles that have affected the West, the North Coast dairymen and women have been largely kind of unscathed. These are the Sonoma, Marin, Humboldt regions uh, of California, which we call the North Coast or in some places, the Lost Coast, because it's so remote. Um, they've always had a pretty steady rainfall, but those folks don't have any access to groundwater, which is kind of our banking system during the dry years. And so because of lack of rain across the state the last three years, every single dairy farmer is suffering under, especially in the North Coast, they don't even have any water to water their, their stock during uh, starting in May. So this is a severe crisis. It, of course, has larger ramifications on the feed cost side of the coin, which, again, I know we'll get to, but that is certainly top of mind. Second to that, maybe even last year, was labor, access to labor, maintaining good relationships with milkers has been a challenge. The labor market has been particularly hard on everyone. I know that that this podcast has looked at that quite a bit, but water continues to put adverse pressure on every single dairy family in California. So how are you helping producers to overcome those obstacles? Well, last year we had the pleasure of designating a new sustainability role in the industry. Sustainability has often been associated with whether or not the industry or the farmers are you know, looking at environmental standards and regulatory standards around the environment, air quality, water quality, and these are all in methane reduction. These are all, they have to be done. They're, you know, they're regulated in California. We have to make sure we're complying with them. But on the broader scale, it became very apparent to our organization, Western United Dairies, that we could not have any efforts in sustainability if we didn't have water and access to resources that would get us either paid for the loss of water or paid to access more expensive water transfers. So we brought in a new director of sustainability last year. It seems to be the kind of up and coming rage. A lot of the creamers and cooperatives um, and trade associations are bringing in their own sustainability gurus. And I think that that's appropriate, but we decided as an organization that sustainability meant 
water certainty, whether you were certain that you weren't going to have any or whether you were certain that you could get more money to pay and offset your feed costs. These are things that we dedicated a tremendous amount of resources to last year, and we're doubling down on this year by hiring a new slew of called Dairy Technical Assistance Programs using um, funds from the California Cattle Council. So essentially the two things that we're looking at are how do we find drought resources for farmers to keep them in business during this hard time, which will hopefully offset some of the higher feed prices. And then the second thing we started to see um, we needed help with is something called land flexation. So um, in California, you have to operate in the assumption that farmers, not just dairymen, but farmers in general are already being forced to fallow ground. So if you operate from that premise, which is very much happening, they're being forced to fallow ground with no payments, no considerations for the banknotes that are on those properties. We set out on a policy side to make sure that a farmer's water rights were attached legally to his land ownership and mineral rights. So just as the government would set aside land and purchase it for, the, say, the expansion of a freeway or the construction of a high-speed rail, if water is in fact, whether it's surface or groundwater, part of the public trust doctrine, which we're told that it is, then the state needs to pay them for it. So last year, we were successful at establishing a statewide policy that groundwater throughout the Central Valley, which is a majority of the state's milkshed, shall go for the bargain price of no less than $750 an acre foot. So in some of these critically overdrafted basins, which is a term we use subject to a new groundwater management law, we call SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, a lot of acronyms here, but under SIGMA, if you are designated in a critically overdrafted basin, the state has now stepped up to offer you what's called demand reduction funds. So we will pay you, farmer, $750 per acre foot of water saved that you don't pump and keep in the ground for those communities that are around you. So that, of course, has some implications on feed costs. Once again, we're limiting mostly the supply of winter wheat and corn. Those are where we usually get the, combi the combined plantings and the, the bigger bang for the buck on acre feet. But that has been a huge effort the organization has lifted because, again, what we started to see is that farmers were being, you know, just told to fallow and they weren't being compensated for it. So those are some major changes in the wind uh, that we've seen up in Sacramento. I think it's interesting that if it rained for the next two months straight in California and, you know, the, the near term drought was over so to speak, that doesn't really mean the issues are over, right? I mean, there's a sort of this interesting dynamic between the short-term reality on the ground, but also these long-term structural issues. And is that, part of the, is that part of the trick of all this stuff? I mean, yeah, it's dry today, but even if it was wet tomorrow, these things won't necessarily go away, correct? Yeah, you're scratching me where I itch, Phil. I think um, the regulatory policy, which is to remove water rights from the system away from people that have had them for centuries is very much in play. But generally, the water system in California was built to supply about 21 million people. There are now 35 million people in California. 
So when you add that dynamic to the agricultural dynamic where California has been a powerhouse, we're a powerhouse exporter for almonds, for dairy, for fruits and nuts. And it's, it's actually a fantastic thing that we have because of our strategic position on the, on the Pacific Rim. But the, the balance to that is that the demand has increased so much in the last three decades with no additional supply. You add the challenge of what happened about, started happening about 20 years ago, where the environmental community basically said, no, water is part of the public trust. The fish and all of the ecosystems that have survived in these rivers are also part of the public trust. We've had a series of judges that have felt the same. And so they actually took part of that pie, approximately 50% of that pie over the last 20 years has now been redirected towards environmental purposes. So to Phil's point, we haven't had any new reservoirs built in California since 1969, and the population has doubled. Ag, the number of irrigable ag acres has also doubled since that time. So you add these things together along with the environmental demand, we don't have enough water ever. So there is a new project coming online, hopefully in about five years, maybe four if we're lucky. It's called Sites Reservoir, and it is what's called North of Delta Offstream Storage, which means for in, in, to the normal person that it will not touch some of the environmental confluences in the center of the state. So it only fills when there is an excess rain event, sort of like some of the ones we've had already this year, that Sites Reservoir would fill up with essentially rainwater and then be distributed out to stakeholders who essentially have come up with money to build it. We are not politically cohesive with the majority party in California. So it is very unlikely that the agricultural sector will get any sniff of that water. So that leads us to the next phase of resilience. In California, um, one of the projects or one of the many projects that we're starting to help fund as often as, as possible, or something called local recharge basins. Let's talk about sustainability of a different sort, the sustainability that, that's maybe closest to your to your heart and home, which is you know, your membership, dairy farmers in California. What trends are you seeing in terms of producers coming into the industry in one way or another and leaving the industry? And, and, and what's WD doing to help retain and attract farmers to California? Again, some of these, you know, I mean, lots of population, Great place to dairy historically, but but certainly, you know, plenty of challenges as well. We've experienced several white waves, as far as I can see from the history of dairying in California. That time is over. We are seeing sellouts at a at a shocking pace. Um, these are a lot of guys, and since milk price is good right now, there's a lot of folks right now that are seeing some value in their cows and in their dairies that may not they might not have a year ago. They were thinking about retiring in the next three or four years, so they're making the move now. So what is interesting, though, and, and, and Blimling helps, helps us a lot with this, we're not seeing those cows go to slaughter. I know <laughs> that other dairies are picking them up in the area, and so the consolidation is leading to fewer dairy farms, but larger herd sizes. And so that I think that's a trend across the nation right now, but it's particularly sharp in California, where we had the average herd size hovering around 1,200 cows for quite a few years. We're seeing the average herd size increase to 1,600 and 1,800 almost overnight. The plants are all full. 
the processing capacity is busting open at the seams, but we're not seeing a lot of new heifers coming on. So I think the supply is going to stay really tight. So the future opportunity of, you know, dairymen wanting to come into California, I don't see that happening. I don't ever get a phone call from a guy from, you know, South Dakota asking me how he can farm in, in, in California. Um, but I am seeing the next generation starting to step up. So these are the 25-year-old guys and gals that have gone to some of our dairy schools. Um, they are starting to come into some of the leased dairy space, which I'm excited about. They are starting to help with these consolidations. There's starting to be some silent partners in there. Um, so I am seeing another younger generation starting to come in, just not at the same rate as the older ones are retiring and selling out. That is a fairly optimistic note, thinking about young people coming into the industry. What else is there to be, uh, what else are you optimistic about as it relates to California dairy? Some of the niche products that these this next generation has really developed. Um, so they're really looking at those cross breeds with Wagyu and Kobe that have really, I think, lit a fire under people. There are other revenue streams besides just milk on the farm now. And if you maybe took advantage of some of the state-funded GHG funds that maybe help you put in a compost-bedded pack barn, or maybe you've got a new digester and you're pumping in some renewable fuel now into the pipeline, those things I think are real optimism streams for the next generation because they really enjoy branding their milk or their beef products as sustainable, green, progressive. They get it. Well, we really appreciate your time today, Anya. Great insights on what's going on in California. Thanks again for joining the Dairy Download. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for today's show. As always, we want to thank our production team, Matt Herrick, Michael Gooden, and Andrew Jerome at IDFA, and Corey Romero over here at Blooming and Associates. If you're interested in what Kathleen and I do for our day jobs, check us out at www.dairy.com or ever.ag. If you want to share feedback on our show, drop us a line at dairydownload at idfa.org. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the Dairy Download. Until next time, stay sharp. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. And a special thanks to our partners at IDFA and Blimling and Associates for sharing their latest episode of the Dairy Download. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. And while you're at it, make sure you subscribe to the Dairy Download as well. If you have questions, comments, or content requests for next week's episode, please don't hesitate to email mlema at wudairies.com or d-a-r-b-y at wudairies.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great week, everyone. While West United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the West United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, 
PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com.